Welcome to Episode 12 of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Shama Scali, Senior Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. And I'm Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. So, Kristen, what are we talking about on this episode? Today, we have the pleasure of hosting Gil Van Bocklin, Chairman, CEO, and Co-Founder of Athersis. One of the things that he talked about, which is really interesting, is his pivotal moment in medical school that made him decide that he wanted to, as he puts it, be part of the solution and not practice bedside medicine. Gil is a Northern California guy who actually started and has kept his biotech in Ohio. We also talked to him about creating that supportive ecosystem for biotech and biopharma. We'll take a quick break and then be back with Gil. Hey, Kristen. What's up, Michelle? Did you see this article on global health partnerships in the pharma industry? I did, actually. I edited it. Oh, I must have missed it on our website, but I was just scrolling through Instagram and saw it. Wow, it's a really good thing that you follow the Instagram account Farm Executive, or else you would have missed it. I would have totally missed it. That's why I follow Farm Executive on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, and all of our other social media channels, which can be found at farmexec.com. Hi everyone, today Michelle and I are pleased to speak with Dr. Gil Van Bocklin, founder and chairman of Athersis. Welcome to the PharmaSec podcast, Gil. Thanks, it's great to be part of it. Can you start us off by telling our listeners about you and your company? Sure. Uh, so Athersis is a biotechnology company that was established by a team of us that came out of Stanford University School of Medicine almost 24 years ago. And the company is located in Cleveland, Ohio. We're just down the street from the Cleveland Clinic, Case Western Reserve University, and University Hospitals. And those are all institutions that we work with pretty closely in in various areas. Our primary therapeutic programs focus on the use of regenerative medicine and cell therapy-based technology, or what we refer to as off-the-shelf stem cell therapy. And we're focused on developing innovative medicines to address some of the uh, areas of substantial unmet medical need out there in areas like stroke, which is our most advanced program just now in phase three clinical development, as well as certain other neurological conditions, cardiovascular disease, inflammatory and immune conditions, and, and other areas that we're, that we're interested in. Our, our particular emphasis is uh, on what is referred to as critical care indications. So these are areas where there's a serious, urgent need to help patients recover from some devastating event, whether it be a stroke or it might be a heart attack or it might be trauma or, or certain other things that can happen. Uh, in terms of my background, um, as you mentioned, I'm one of the co-founders of the company and have been part of it since the very beginning. Uh, I earned two degrees at the University of California at Berkeley in molecular biology and in economics, so I've always had kind of a passion for for business as well as medicine, science, and technology. And then Following my time at uh, at Berkeley, I uh, went to Stanford uh, School of Medicine, where I earned my PhD in genetics. And in addition to my day job 
here at Athersys, where I've been chairman and CEO since the year 2000. I've been privileged to be part of several other organizations. So for several years, I served as chairman of an organization based in Washington, D.C., called the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine. I've also been a longstanding member of the BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization Board. And for a little over 10 years, I've served as chairman of the National Center for Regenerative Medicine. So I keep pretty busy with my various activities and uh, have been really on the forefront of the field of regenerative medicine now for a long, long time. That's great, and we have so much to talk about with you, Gil, Um, so let's get started. When I first talked with you, you told me a story about being in medical school and thinking about having to tell patients that you didn't have something to solve what was ailing them, and that's when you were part of when you decided that you wanted to instead be part of the solution, as you you told me. Uh, So tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, so that that was actually a pretty pivotal experience for me. So as a first-year student at uh, Stanford School of Medicine, one of the things you do is you're exposed to a whole series of clinical case studies. And clinicians will bring in patients and uh, sometimes their their family members and present cases to you that are meant to be thought-provoking and help you understand what life might be like if you're practicing on the front lines of clinical medicine. And in that first year, one of the cases had a had a pretty significant impact on me. It was actually a young boy who was about six years old at the time, and he had been diagnosed with a devastating neurodegenerative condition. And and so the case that was presented, essentially, um, the messaging was this unfortunate young child was going to live a pretty devastating and horrible life for the next few years, and it was going to end really badly. And at the end of the presentation of the clinical case study, the attending physician, the one that was presenting the case to us, said, look, let me explain to you why we were presenting this case to you today and why you're going to see other uh, other cases in the weeks and months ahead that have kind of a similar theme. You need to be prepared for what life might be like if you decide that you want to be on the front lines um, of clinical medicine. You need to be prepared for situations where you don't have an answer for the patient or their family. And sometimes you're going to have to be the empathetic bearer of bad news, explaining to people that, look, I'm really sorry, but there's nothing that we can really do to help. And um, you need to decide whether or not that's something you can handle and whether you'll be ready for that. Now, for me, that had a, a pretty significant impact on me because uh, as I thought about that in the nights that followed and over the days and weeks that followed, I realized that I didn't want to be somebody that was being the bearer of bad news and telling patients, hey, look, there's nothing we can do to help you. Rather, I decided that I wanted to devote my time and my career to being part of developing new solutions. And and while I was at Stanford, I was fortunate enough to meet a few other people that thought about the world and thought about the the uh, the universe of medical technology and things that could be done in a way that was similar to the way I was thinking about it. And so that ultimately led to the team of us that decided that we wanted to start the company and commit ourselves to developing better, safer, more effective medicines and specifically going after areas where traditional medical care was inadequate or unavailable to many uh, many patients that were suffering from a whole range of different things. So that was a pretty instrumental experience for me, and it had a big impact on shaping the trajectory of my career. Gil, can you tell us about the path that led you into regenerative medicine? Sure. So I think it's important for people to understand that in the beginning, we weren't even focused on cell therapy or regenerative medicine. In fact, back when we formed the company, it was 
kind of an emerging notion, but it wasn't it wasn't something that was kind of a full-blown field yet. When we started the company, we were focused on developing something called synthetic microchromosome technology, or actually building synthetic human chromosomes, potentially as a as a way to uh, pursue non-viral gene therapy treatments for patients that were really sick and, and needed help. Um, over time, that led to the development of some of the other technologies that were pioneered by Dr. John Harrington, who's our chief scientific officer and co-founder of the company. John and I did our work together at Stanford at the same time, and we had a common interest in developing innovative medicines. John worked at Amgen in the early part of his career, and, and together we, along with the other co-founders, Rob Mays and some of the other folks involved, really became focused on developing a company that, that could move the needle, if you will, or transform medicine in specific areas. Some of the technologies that John developed in the field of human genomics led to some of our early partnerships with major pharma companies like Pfizer and J&J and Merck and Bristol-Myers Squibb. But one of the interesting thing that, things that happened was those technologies attracted the attention of some pioneering researchers in the area of stem cell uh, medicine or stem cell biology that had made a very interesting discovery uh, in, in the field. That attracted our attention. We decided that it was something that we wanted to pursue. And as we started doing more and more work with the technology and discovering uh, what it was all about, it became clear to us that it offered up a unique opportunity to um, develop therapies in areas that were pretty important. Um, you know, in the beginning, it wasn't really a central part of the messaging to investors or to others that were familiar with or following the company. It was something that kind of grew over time and then became kind of a snowball and just gathering momentum and getting bigger and bigger and leading us into some very interesting areas. So what were some of the company's early wins in this area? So in the early days, we weren't really sure where the technology might be most relevant or where it might be useful. And what most companies tend to do when when they were at the stage that we were at is a, a venture-backed company that had limited resources and, and only so many so many hands and and so many personnel to basically approach things. We we decided that, look, one thing that people typically do is they'll pick one or two areas and then they'll pursue those as potential applications. But if you end up being wrong, then it's pretty much game over at that point. So we decided to approach the problem a bit differently. Um, we decided that what we were going to do was we were going to make our technology available to outside um, labs, experts in various areas or disciplines, and establish collaborations with them so that we could more effectively pursue where the technology might be relevant or useful. And so it started off as kind of a social experiment. We started working with a couple of investigators in a couple of different areas. Um, they then started talking about the work that they were doing, which is very promising and exciting to some of their colleagues and some of their peers. They started publishing their, their data and results in, in leading journals. That led to more and more collaborative opportunities for us over time. Eventually, what we came to realize was that this off-the-shelf stem cell technology, which we call multi-stem, appeared to have relevance across a range of different therapeutic areas, and that touched on some of the therapeutic indications that I mentioned earlier, so things like stroke or uh, neurological, other neurological indications or cardiovascular disease or inflammatory and immune disease or uh, transplantation, for example. But that really, the way we got there was by building this broader and broader collaborative network that ultimately came to involve dozens of leading independent research labs at over 30 different institutions across the United States, Europe, and other parts of the world. So that collaborative approach that we utilized, which is a bit differently than the way a lot of companies approach it, because a lot of companies want to do everything in-house, 
you know, our, our view was to really be a little bit more externally focused and, uh, and work in a collaborative way. And that helped us amass an, uh, an enormous amount of information and data over time that illustrated where our technology had the greatest amount of promise. You know, it's interesting listening to you talk about this, and, and really it sounds like you know, you've kind of evolved. The company has evolved. The people have evolved as the technology has evolved and as you've learned different things. Can you talk a little bit about, um, as a leader, what's that like? Um, I think that's pretty amazing that you were able to evolve that way. Sure. Well, I think it's always been kind of a core part of our philosophy, even back to the early days. I mean, one of the things that I think – we have um, never been afraid to do is to challenge conventional thinking or conventional approaches or even what some people would consider to be accepted dogma. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples, actually. Um, when, when John Harrington uh, came up with the idea of one of the pioneering genomics technologies that, that he led the development of and was really kind of his vision, um, we presented the concept for the technology to our scientific advisory board as kind of a first step. And this consisted of luminaries from Stanford and Yale and, and Case Western Reserve and, you know, chairman of departments and highly accomplished scientists and, and uh, experts across a, a range of different areas. And when John presented the vision for this technology, um, we let them assess it and, and say, hey, give us your honest opinion. Is this worth pursuing or not? And each and every one of them, I, I remember this meeting like it was yesterday. We actually sat down in one of our conference rooms, and, and every member of the scientific advisory board looked at, at what John was presenting and said, that's never going to work. And they all presented their reasons, and it went on for quite some time. And at the end of that, I said, look, let's ask a very simple question. What if you're wrong? What if it does work the way that John has envisioned and described it? Will it be useful? Will we be able to utilize that technology to do uh, some things that, uh, that will be very powerful and informative? And it didn't take them very long to say, well, well yes, it, it, it would be very useful, but it's not going to work. So basically what we did was we approached that in the following way. We said, look, why don't we just do a, a pilot study where we determine whether or not that technology works the way that John envisioned it, and if we're right about that, it will open up a whole – set of uh, avenues, if you will, or new doorways for exploration and, and innovation. And um, we got permission to do that, and within several months, we had accumulated enough data to show that the technology worked exactly the way that John envisioned it. And again, we went on to publish that work in leading scientific journals to illustrate how pioneering it was, and that led to partnerships with some of the major pharma companies that I mentioned, as well as a whole bunch of other things. But I think that's a really good example of how we as an organization have been unafraid to think differently about things and how to challenge, uh, how to challenge, if you will, conventional wisdom about what might work or what, what not work and just follow the evidence. And, and I think that as long as you instill a, uh, uh, as long as you create a culture that allows people and in fact encourages people to think that way and to be open-minded and really pursue new and interesting avenues of opportunity, some surprising things can happen. That was ultimately what led us in the path of the regenerative medicine technology that we've been working with now for so many years and, and some of the other things that we've done along the way, is to be unafraid to think differently and to challenge conventional wisdom. And I'm, I'm actually very proud of that because I think creating an organization where that's not only um, permitted but it's actually encouraged 
is something that uh, inspires a lot of innovation and has a pretty big uh, has a big impact on people. I agree. I think that is definitely something that you should be proud of, and that's a big accomplishment. Um, and I think our listeners will, you know, some of them will really be able to relate to that, especially those that are coming from the lab into into more commercialization and into the boardroom and have to deal with um, with those types of situations now. So now, as we have mentioned, you are working in the area of cardiovascular health, which our editorial director wrote about for our July issue, and the article can be found on our website, pharmacrex.com. So, Gil, tell us a little, but not too much, because we want our listeners to go read the article on this, but tell us about some of these breakthroughs. Well, one of the areas where we have followed the evidence, if you will, is in treating areas of substantial unmet need in an indication like ischemic stroke, for example. And uh, for anybody that's had a family member or a loved one that suffered a stroke, they know just how debilitating and, and transforming, not in a good way, uh, that kind of event can be. And um, what we discovered a few years ago was, and it, it kind of builds on the theme I was just talking about, which is challenging conventional wisdom and, and being uh, unafraid, if you will, to follow the, the evidence and, and forge a new path, if you will. Uh, we discovered that Multistem, our, our off-the-shelf stem cell platform, appeared to have real relevance in treating ischemic injury and disease, and we tested that in working with uh, multiple outside independent labs. And one of the areas in the cardiovascular space that became very promising was um, pursuing the, the the evidence that showed that multistem had real relevance in treating ischemic stroke, and but we found some very unexpected things along the way. And as you might imagine, I mean, stroke has been a very challenging area for a long, long time. Most of the major pharma companies have had programs where they tried to develop new ways to treat stroke, and virtually all of them have failed. And so, in fact, many of those companies gave up over time just because they couldn't figure out a way to develop a new pill or or something that they could use to treat those types of stroke patients. But what we discovered with with Multistem is is that when you administer it following a stroke, it does something a little bit different. It actually regulates the immune system and it, it uh, down-regulates inflammation that can be very harmful in the wake of a stroke, and it stimulates reparative mechanisms that help the patient recover and helps the tissue heal over time. So that's something that we're really, really excited about. And, of course, readers can read more by going to the article. But I think it's something that a lot of people look at that and say, wow, if you can make a difference in an area like that, you're really going to change medicine for the better and you're going to help a lot of patients. And that's what really uh, is, is so exciting for us is to be part of something like that. Let's also talk a little bit about the biotech landscape. So you're a Northern California guy. And California is arguably one of the best places for biotech. So why did you pick Ohio to launch the company, and what has kept you there so long? Well, it's interesting because when we made the decision to start the company, we always thought we would end up in California. And uh, as it turns out, we had an offer from one of the other co-founders, Dr. Hunt Willard, who had been at Stanford uh, School of Medicine, and then he was recruited to become the chairman of the genetics department at Case Western Reserve out here in, in Cleveland. And uh, Hunt invited John and, and me out to uh, work collaboratively with his team and to do some of the early research that led to the formation of the company and then allowed us to spin the company out and get started at, uh, in earnest. And when we first came out to Ohio, I actually left my wife behind in California because I thought in a few months we'd probably be going back to California. 
But uh, when we got out here, there was a group of leaders from the Cleveland Clinic, from Case, from University Hospitals, and some other institutions that had a vision, and they were waiting for somebody like us to arrive on the scene. And their vision was they wanted to create they, – they were tired of young, promising uh, innovators and entrepreneurs and scientists um, getting up and leaving uh, Ohio and then going out to one of the coasts. And, and so they said, we want to do something to help change that. So they, their vision was, what if we create an environment where we can give these young biomedical entrepreneurs and, and innovators access to core facilities and clinical expertise at places like the Cleveland Clinic and some of the other institutions that I mentioned? And then they ultimately decided they were going to go one step beyond that. They said, look, we want to create a state-of-the-art biomedical company incubator facility, which ultimately uh, was uh, became known as BioEnterprise. And we actually were there for the very, very beginning of that. In fact, they reached out to, to John and me and said, look, you can help design this. You can tell us what needs to go into this facility so that it will provide an accommodating home for early-stage biotechnology and biomedical companies like Athersys. And uh, and so we we grabbed that as an opportunity. We saw that they were there was genuine institutional commitment. They really wanted to work with us and help us. So we worked together. That led to the formation of BioEnterprise. We actually became the first and the anchor tenant in that facility, which then filled up over time with other companies. And then several years after that, we moved out into our current facilities, which are located in the MedTech Corridor region just down the street from the Cleveland Clinic. But what happened over time was that early vision that started with BioEnterprise, spawned dozens of additional biotechnology and biomedical companies and also led to the creation of other incubators for those types of companies over time. So I think that it's been a very interesting evolution here in Northeast Ohio, and it, the same has been true in other parts of Ohio, but I think a lot of it really occurred here in, in Northeast Ohio, is creating an environment that was designed to attract, encourage, uh, help, uh, incentivize um, early-stage biomedical companies, and we were really kind of at the leading edge of that and are, and are proud of what that legacy has helped shape. You mentioned all of the great health of science that's going on there, um, and it actually has been for a while. I was thinking of that when you were just talking now. I mean, this is not anything new uh, that's been happening there. So why does that area not get the same recognition as places like California or Boston, or now we're all talking about New York? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I think that Cleveland uh, actually is getting more recognition, and it's it's well-deserved. But I think that, in general, most Midwesterners have kind of a humble, low-key attitude. They're uh, pretty self-effacing. They, they don't like to brag about their accomplishments. And I think that um, that's an attitude that I've seen over and over again. I mean, I think if, if the Midwest – uh, and, and uh, maybe Ohio in general, one thing that it could do a bit better is marketing its accomplishments and marketing what it's been able to achieve um, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more aggressively, if you will. Um, in in places like some of the other hubs that you've mentioned, part of it is, is that there's there's more activity going on in those regions. So in California, for sure, in Boston, or even some of the other places um, that uh, that have become established biotech hubs over time. Um, I, I just I think part of it is really there is a historical perception of uh, the Midwest not being a research or innovation hub, and I think that's actually not not the case. And I think part of it is just marketing, and part of it is um, people tend to focus on what's in, right in front of them. 
Now, obviously, the Bay Area had a huge advantage historically because that's where the venture capital industry really uh, was formed and took shape and, and led to so many exciting opportunities. But I think one of the things that history teaches us is that you can achieve pretty remarkable success virtually anywhere if you have all the core ingredients to make it happen. I mean, who would have thought that Thousand Oaks, California, would become a major hub for a company like Amgen, which for many, many years was the most highly valued biotechnology company in the industry, right? I mean, anybody that knows anything about Thousand Oaks, and actually it's kind of interesting. So John Harrington, as I mentioned, worked in the early part of his career at Amgen, and he grew up in Thousand Oaks. So, you know, he saw firsthand that an area that was not recognized as being a hub for biotechnology or biomedical research became one because of a group of pioneering people that said, we're going to do it right here. And I think you can do it pretty much anywhere. Um, I think what we've seen is is that the capital will flow to where the opportunities and where the innovation is, and uh, people are actually attracted to life in the Midwest. And, uh, and so we've been able to recruit many, many very talented people, and I think a lot of other organizations have experienced the same thing. So it's getting more recognition. I think it's well-deserved, and, uh, again, we're, we're proud to be part of that. I want to move into the business side of things before we uh, wrap the podcast up. So when did you file for your IPO? Well, we actually became a public company in 2007. Okay, so 2007. What made you decide to take the company public and not keep it private or sell it off to another company? Well, when we became a public company back in 2007, we we actually didn't do a traditional IPO. We acquired another company that was a public company and merged into that entity and became uh, became a public uh, publicly listed company on NASDAQ as a result. Up until that point, we were a venture-backed company with institutional investors from California to New York and internationally as well from places like Singapore and Norway and, and other countries in Europe. But we knew that to eventually fulfill our goal, which was to become a leading biopharmaceutical company, we needed to eventually make that transition to becoming a public company because that provides greater access to capital. It actually allows you to uh, to tell your story in, in a way that is um, maybe a bit more difficult for private companies because investors don't really call, uh, don't really follow it as closely if you're if you're a private company, unless they're obviously already shareholders in the company. Um, but we, you know, our goal was never to just develop the company to a certain point and then sell it to somebody else. Um, we, the team of us, really established a goal from the beginning to say, look, we want to become a leading biopharmaceutical company, and we're going to take a long run view of how we get there. And so I've always described it as this is a marathon, uh, not a sprint. And, uh, and in fact, that's been our philosophy from the very beginning, is to identify the things that we needed to do to ultimately fulfill that goal. And now we feel like we're pretty close to accomplishing that. Our most advanced program is in phase three clinical development. As I mentioned, it's uh, focused on an area like stroke where we need a lot more innovation and we really need to if we're, if we're successful in developing multi-stem for the treatment of stroke, and we believe that we will be, then that could transform medicine in a pretty important way and, and actually create a lot of attention and additional momentum for the company. That actually leads us into our next question perfectly. So you've been with the company the whole time. That's correct, right? Correct. Okay. And is all of your founders have also been with the company the whole time? Yeah, that's also correct. In fact, we've had uh, – so John Harrington and Rob Mays and a few others have been here since the very beginning, and we've had a lot of people that have been part of the company for, for over 20 years. 
So over the years, though, there had to have been other offers made to you and your co-founders and, you know, the enticement of maybe an early retirement or something like that. What keeps you coming to work every day at the same company, not selling the company, as you guys talked about it being a marathon, not, you know, going off and forming something else? What keeps you there every day? Yeah, first and foremost, I think it's the knowledge that we might be on the cusp of transforming medicine as we know it in some really important areas. And everybody that works here is truly passionate about that. So if you think about stroke as an example, stroke's the leading cause of serious disability. And with the aging demographics that we now face, because it's no secret that with the aging of the baby boomers and pretty much in, in every country you can think of around the world, more and more people are at risk of a stroke every year. Traditional standard of care for stroke has been pretty limited. Uh, patients have to get to the hospital right away. Typically, they have a very small window for getting to the hospital and then getting the limited number of treatments that are available for them. So for anybody that has had a loved one or a family member that's experienced serious disability as a result of a stroke, it's pretty devastating. I mean, I saw it happen to my grandfather when I was a young man, and it was a very difficult time, not just for him but for the entire family because we felt powerless. There was nothing we could do to help him, and he uh, eventually had to live the last several years of his life in a full-time institutional care facility with people tending to his most basic needs. And that's a story that we've seen over and over and over again, and a lot of people can relate to that. So one of the things that really drives us here at the company, and I think this is true of virtually everybody that works here, um, is, is that 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 vision, that knowledge that we might be on the cusp of doing something that is truly special, that could change the world for the better, can change medicine for the better, and could help uh, a lot of people out there. I mean, there are about 17 million people every year that suffer the debilitating effects of a stroke. If we could improve medicine for those people and help keep them out of institutional care facilities and give them their life back, that is something that would be pretty special and remarkable. And I think when, when people think about that, it really drives them. It, it, uh, it's, yes, it's hard. It's, it's taken years of effort and a lot of work, but I think that when people look at that, they say, you know what, I want to be part of that. And uh, that's really what helps, what drives a lot of people in the organization and what's, what motivates us. Thank you so much. That's really great, Gil. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your insight with our listeners today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And now it's time for this week's leadership tip from Pharma Execs. Hi, I'm Dr. Gil Van Bachlin, Chairman and CEO at Athersys. My leadership tip is encourage other people to say, I don't know, with confidence. That promotes greater teamwork, greater dependence on one another, and really stimulates intellectual honesty. That will help any organization accomplish its vision. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. Remember that you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, or on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of Farm Exec, its parent company, or our advertisers. 
For editorial questions, please email editorial director lisa.henderson at ubm.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at todd.baker at ubm.com. <laughs>